I am excited about this text. When we get to Psalm 119, I need you to go to verse 153, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 119, 153. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord, God's people, and the, the opportunity to study God's Word together in liberty? It's just, a, it's just a real blessing. All right, verse 153, consider, and that's the title of the message today, consider. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and deliver me, quicken me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgments. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And Father, I pray that it has a real... Uh, impact and effect on us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You can see that that David is pleading with God in this section, and it's very much a continuation of the last stanza. And I want you to notice a couple of things. The, the first thing is notice his approach. If you look at verse 153, consider mine affliction. You see he's not making a demand. Lord, will you consider this? Will you, will you pay attention to it? Will you observe it? One thing that I want you to notice about his approach is that there's a, there's a safety here. There's a confidence in his approach. It's not a cringing type of approach before the throne. I, I think of when uh, Mordecai told Esther that she needed to go and talk to the king because Haman is going to kill all of the Jews. And she said, if I go in and he doesn't point his scepter at me, if I go in without being invited, he'll kill me. And what did Mordecai say? Well, it could be. If it doesn't come from you, God will give deliverance from someplace. But what if you were coming to the kingdom for such a time as this? And so what was her answer? Well, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. How many of you are thankful that you don't have to fear God killing you when you enter into his presence. Do you think maybe Almighty God has more power than, than Ahasuerus? Do you think he has more power than a Nebuchadnezzar? Does he have more power than a Henry VIII? And no, Bill, I don't look like him either. <laughs> it's so wonderful that we can go, and we looked this morning, how we, when we are saved... It's to an everlasting consolation that we receive comfort from God. Listen, not terror. David was in trouble. He needed help, and he knew that he could go before his holy and almighty God, and he feels safe at the throne. He finds comfort in the presence of God. But notice also verse 153 again, consider mine affliction and deliver me. Consider it. 
Verse 154, plead my cause and deliver me. And verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked. Great are thy tender mercies. And he just, verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. Is he putting any kind of time frame on God in this? He's happy just to stay in the presence of God and enjoy the comfort of God while he waits for God's decision. While he waits for God's decision. You see, he entreats the Father as he is. The Father and the God of the universe, he does not treat God as his servant. I've told you this before. I catch myself doing this when I pray. God, do this. God, help Carrie New to heal from her surgery and help the the procedure. That's the way that I pray. It's almost like I'm calling Jesus. Here, boy, I need you to do this for me now. It ought to be, consider Carrie. I know that you love her. Consider her. Plead her cause. Do you all see the difference in that? Notice his, the, the way that he is coming. Notice the, the way that he appears before the Lord. It's safety, but it's also humility. Um, it, it, he's pleading for consideration. Keep your place here. Go to Zechariah. You may remember this from our study. Second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah. Chapter 7. And remember, they've come back into the land. And as they've come back into the land, the, the, the priests, the Jewish leaders, had instilled these, um, or had imposed these fasts on them. And not only were they to fast, but they were to weep during the fast. And God had ordained one of those, but now there were three. And so they're saying, do we still have to do this? And if you remember, the title of my message was, do I have to? Do I have to? So notice what it says in verse uh, 4. Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, look it, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And so he, God challenges them, well, whether or not you have to do this, did you do any of it for me? So when we almost crawl into the presence of God, when, when we are pleading with him for deliverance, He's pleading for deliverance. He's pleading for salvation. We'll see in a minute. He's pleading for life. And yet, he chooses to go in meekly and humbly and just wait on God. I wonder sometimes in my own prayer life if my pleading is more born of impatience than it is on the comfort of his presence. When, you, when it is time to pray, 
Do you go just to spend time with God? Or do you go just to get something from Him? Now, all of us who have had teenagers, at some point they're going to come and ask us for money so they can go and do something with their friends. Right? And they come in all smiles and you're happy to see them and you think they're going to spend some time with you. Sorry, Dad, Logan's waiting. Sorry, Dad, Michael's waiting. And then it gets worse. Sorry, Dad, Josh is waiting. If you don't know, that's the son-in-law. Not of Jacob. That's a different thing. (laughs) Nathaniel, you liked that? (laughs) And then they go and... Okay, you know, you feel like you're George Jetson. Remember with the wallet? And she'd, he'd take out a, a, a dollar or whatever, and then she'd take the whole wallet, right? Is that the way that we are with God? So notice his appearance before God, that it's in humility, it's not in terror, and yet he doesn't have a time agenda. He asked God, Please answer my prayer according to your judgments. Now, I want you to notice something. I missed this last week. And it's fun when you compare Scripture with Scripture. So go back to Psalm 119. So look at verse 156. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Quicken me according to thy judgments. Do you see how that's plural? Look back at the previous stanza. In verse 149. Hear my voice according unto thy loving kindness. O Lord, quicken me according to thy judgment. So, quicken me according to your judgment. That's God's discernment. This judgment, those are the things that God has declared right and wrong. Isn't that a fun distinction that you have between that? Will not the the judge of the world do right? Of course he's going to do right. So, God, I trust your judgment. I think of that uh, Wayne Watson song called Home Free. And that was really meaningful to us uh, when, when Riley died. And as a matter of fact, on Riley's headstone, it, we called him Tater. And this is our precious little Tater is home free. It says that on his headstone. But in that song, it says, The hardest prayer to pray is, O Lord, not my will, but thine be done. And yet, if we will understand the consolation, the comfort that comes from God's presence, when we crawl into his presence because we can't stand, if we just recognize the comfort that comes from it and say, God, I'm on your timetable. You are not on my timetable. It's interesting here that he trusts God's judgments. And not only that, but look at what it says in verse 153. Consider... Mine affliction. Consider mine affliction. He trusts not only God's timing, but he trusts God's estimation of his trouble. Have you ever gone to someone, you know, you think that your car is done, and the mechanic says, that's no big deal. And you're like, oh. And we go to God, and we think that we're in the hardest thing of our life, and God reveals to us, you know what? That ain't no thing. This is... This is nothing. It's okay. It's okay. He trusts God's judgments. And then he trusts by exercise of spiritual will, God's timing. 
No, this is hard to do. But you know what this is, this trusting God's timing? Do you know what that is? That's a mark of spiritual maturity. It's a mark of maturity. Any of you, it's hard for you to wait on something. So I jump from interest to interest to interest. And hobby to hobby to hobby. And so like right now, y'all want to know what my newest one is? Because the sermon is all about me, of course. My newest hobby is vintage fountain pens. And why not, right? I want to get into restoring old fountain pens. That's just really interesting to me. I watch YouTube videos about it. I'm learning how to polish them, how to repair the nib, how to get the feed to flow again. Isn't that awesome? How many of you think, honestly, that may be the dumbest thing you've ever heard? (laughs) Right? But it gets worse. It gets worse because there's this thing that's called eBay. Do you realize how many vintage pens there are on eBay? I need that one. And I need that one. And I need that one. And I need them now. (laughs) It's so funny. And Laura's going to divorce me if I actually get into this thing and spend all of our money. On pens. How many of you think that if I spent the mortgage on pens, that that might be an immature, foolish thing to do? Right? It's the same thing with our spiritual life. Really, the thing that we need to do when we're going through trouble is we, go, we, we need to go and sit at God's feet and ask God to consider our trouble, consider my affliction. And then we need to ask God this, what do I need to learn right now? What, what, do I, what, what lessons are you teaching me right now? So his, his appearance before God, safe humility, patience. But then notice his appeal. What, what is he asking for? The first thing he asks for is in verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me. Deliver me. Then look at 154. Plead my cause. Plead my cause. I think this is an interesting thing. I don't know how much David understood the Godhead. Um, You know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. A really fun thing, if you haven't heard this, is the term Godhead is used in your Bible three times. Isn't that fun? And so what we do is we go and we pray to Mary... And ask her to plead our cause before her son. Is that what we do? Why? Because there's one God. And one mediator between God and men. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? So we go to Jesus. But what I think is, is, is interesting scripturally. Is go to Romans chapter 8. I'm preaching in New York this week, and I'm trying to decide whether or not to preach this text. Look at verse 26, Romans 8 and verse 26. Likewise, 
the Spirit, you see the capital S, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Notice, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, honestly, I don't know if the psalmist knew that he was appealing to the Spirit to go to the Father for him, but we know that. But we know that, Lord Jesus, through your Spirit, please intercede with the Father for me. Plead my cause. Plead my cause. That's what he's praying. Consider my affliction and deliver me. And plead my cause. Help the Father to know what I need. Because honestly, like the psalm says, because I don't know what to pray for, as I ought. I don't know what I need, but you do, so consider it. So notice his appeal. First, consideration for deliverance. Second, for God himself to plead his cause and deliverance. Now notice this. Go back to the uh, Psalm 119. I mentioned this already. But notice what he says again in verse uh, 156. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Isn't that a great word, tender? Tender. Great are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Uh, Then quicken me. According to thy judgments, quicken me. Remember, we said, we looked at this last week. And, and ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. To be quickened means to be made alive. And what David needed at this moment, and what we need when we're crawling into the presence of God, is we actually need more life, more life force, more energy. Not in a new age way. We're not going to get crystals. Right? We're not looking for a rainbow of some kind. What we need is actual life from God. Um, There's a great spiritual analogy that I think many of you will remember. Do you remember Popeye getting his spinach? Right? Bluto is beating him up. And somehow he gets the can of spinach. And I was always impressed that he could squeeze open a can of spinach. And he'd eat that spinach and he'd get strong and win. That's what we need. We need spinach. (laughs) We, We need that. When we are being defeated, when the world, the flesh, and the devil are oppressing us, we actually need life. And that life comes from God. And what's interesting is, like we said last week, there's no other place to look because only God has power in the day of death. Only God has power to breathe into man the breath of life and he becomes a living soul. When we feel like we are at the end and we can't go on, God will give us more life. I think of Adoniram Judson on the mission field. And all that he went through, he buried three wives on the mission field. He lost children on the mission field. One of the saddest stories ever was he's in prison for 18 months. They kept him hanging upside down for a year. And his wife had a baby while he's in prison. 
And she's walking around. They had no food. She's so hungry. She was so malnutrition. She had so, such malnutrition, so malnourished that she couldn't feed her baby. And she's walking around the city begging a mother to feed her child. Do you know what God gave them when they needed it? More life. And I promise you that if we will just go into God's presence, that he will sustain us. Doesn't he uphold all things by the word of his power? So what did he pray for? He prayed for life. And he prays for it several times in this text. Notice it's in verse uh, uh, 156. Quicken me according to thy judgments. Verse 159. Consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. So his appeal, his, his, his third appeal is for life. And then number three. <clears throat> So we looked at his appearance. How did he appear? He was safe there. It was comfortable. And he was patient, waiting for God. And it's a mature approach or appeal. And then, uh, then his appeal is for deliverance, consideration, and uh, life. And then look at the way that he approaches. What is the basis for this approach? Consider, verse 153, consider mine affliction and deliver me. Why? For I do not forget thy law. Then notice what he says in verse um, 157. Many are my persecutors and mine enemies, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. And then he, he says, I'm grieved because they keep not the word of God. And then he says, quicken me. Why? Because consider how I love thy precepts. Quicken me. So here, here's my question. And, you know, we could become more eloquent and develop an outline through all of that. But just this, how many of you, honestly, you need something from God? And I'm not, I don't want to be crass. Why should he give you anything? Why? On what basis should he answer my prayer? Well, in the last section, according to thy loving kindness, just because he loves me. Isn't that good? But here in this text, there are some qualifications. Look at what it says. It says, verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. I want us to look at a couple of things. There are three things that we have learned so far that can be done with God's law. What can be done with God's words? Well, First of all, an enemy of God refuses to listen to God's words. They won't even hear them. Have you ever had somebody say this? Stop quoting scripture to me. How many of you have had that happen? Stop quoting scripture to me. That person is an enemy of God. I was actually dealing with somebody from the Gideons and talking with them about God's word. And um, later on, somebody had met him and said, I know that preacher. All he does is ask questions and quote scripture. Well, if that's what I'm known for, that's better than when Stacy New invited one of her neighbors to church one time and she said, Isn't there where they have that short preacher that thinks he's funny? <laughs> I'd rather have I'd rather be known for the other one. Okay? It, it, it's this is what he's known for. So you can forget God's words. Keep, let me keep your place here in Psalms. Go to, to John chapter 8. 
An enemy of God refuses to listen to God's words. John chapter 8, look at verse 47. He that is of God heareth God's... What's that next word? Is it word or words? Ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. Enemies of God refuse to hear God's words. Now, how do we hear God's words? Through preaching. Faith cometh by and hearing by. How can they hear without a... You got to be in church. I know you might be thinking, I am. I'm glad you're here. And there's some of you that are watching by video, you can't be here because of illness or whatever. Praise God that we have this technology. But hearing God's word needs to be a priority in our lives. Being under preaching, we saw just briefly in the Sunday school hour that in Titus, that God's word is manifested through preaching. The purpose of preaching is to open up God's word like we're trying to do with Psalm 119 today. Understanding it, opening it, but you have to listen to it. And enemies of God refuse. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to do it. Then, what else does an enemy of God do? An enemy of God will forget God's words. Look, look at what it says in Psalm 119, verse 139. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. They have forgotten thy words. And there are so many Christians that know what the Bible says and they just do everything they can to disregard it, to despise it, to walk away from it, to forget it. And then thirdly, enemies of God do not keep his words. So we're back in verse 158. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. They kept not thy word. You know, some of you may wonder why um, we here at Grace Baptist and the, the churches we fellowship with, the men that we bring in to teach here, why we become so grieved when people change the Bible? It's because they don't keep his words. They don't keep his words. And this, so tomorrow I'll be preaching in Rochester, New York, and I wanted to do some, some work. There are the three major seminaries there, Rochester Seminary, Crozier Seminary, and Colgate Seminary, all Baptist seminaries. And a hundred years ago, they all went bad. A hundred years ago. And I'll give you three guesses on the first thing they gave up to go bad. The Word of God. The Word of God. And this, this is a book. This is Patrick Kennedy's book. He, he found this information and brought it to me, and it's just perfect. The head of the Rochester Seminary was a guy named Augustus Hopkins Strong. I love that name, Augustus. Augustus Hopkins Strong, and he was a man of God. He was a brilliant man. He wrote a systematic theology that is still used today. But he also loved modern forms of education and learning. And he wanted the latest scientific discoveries brought into education. 
and which is fine, but you know what, you know a good term for that? It's called progressive. Progressive. And so what he did while believing in orthodox fundamental doctrine, he began to accept teachers and invite teachers that didn't believe the Bible. And it started undermining the faith of the people. And he, he believed in this thing called some kind of spiritual monism where he'd combine all this philosophy together. And he loved the philosopher Hegel. And remember Hegel's dialectic that you have the thesis and the antithesis. The antithesis is the opposite of the thesis. And so you come to a consensus through dialogue and now that becomes the new synthesis. But then the synthesis becomes the thesis and you have to, so you have this ever moving concept of truth. So he tried to mix that with Christianity. So towards the end of his life, he retires from the seminary and he goes to the mission field to see the work that his graduates are doing on the mission field. And this book, it was written in 1919, and it's called A Tour, uh, 1918, I'm sorry. It's called A Tour of the Missions, Observations and Conclusions. And listen to this. He said, The weakness of our denomination in such cities as New York results from the acceptance of the method of Scripture interpretation, which I have been criticizing. We are losing our faith in the Bible and our determination to stand for its teachings. We are introducing into our ministry men, listen, who either never knew the Lord or who have lost their faith in him and their love for him. Their unbe the unbelief in our seminary teaching is like a blinding mist which is slowly settling down upon our churches and is gradually abolishing not only all definite views of Christian doctrine, but also all convictions of duty to contend earnestly for the faith of our fathers. So we are giving up our polity, that's our church government, to please and join other denominations. And he goes on to talk about that. Then listen to what he says. The one thing that he noticed more than anything else on the mission field was these missionaries weren't preaching the gospel. They had imbibed the social gospel. Do you all remember who it was that brought the social gospel? Remember Walter Rauschenbusch? We talked about that. Guess who hired Walter Rauschenbusch? Guess who defended him when he was challenged on his orthodoxy? So now listen to what he says. Because remember, Rauschenbusch didn't believe Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He died to pay for the macro sins of the world. Those macro sins are nationalism, individualism, capitalism, and militarism. And the answers were socialism, corporatism, pacifism, and internationalism. Sounds just like today, doesn't it? hundred years later. So he finds they're not preaching the gospel, they're doing the social gospel. Listen to what he says. This so-called historical method, that's how you would determine whether the Bible's true or not, has effects on the missionary cause at home as well as in the lands far away. How shall they preach except they be sent? The sending of missionaries is dependent upon the zeal and liberality of the churches in our land. Listen, but how can one who is not sure that Jesus ever uttered the words of the Great Commission urge the churches to fulfill that command of Christ? How can one who has never felt his own need of an atonement adjure his brethren by Christ's death for their sins not to let the heathen perish? 
How can one who has never, how can one who has had no experience of Christ as a present and divine Savior have power to stand against the rationalism and apathy of the church? What happened? They gave up the Word of God. They had no power. His students, his teachers, he had another teacher named Cornelius Wolfkin who taught men how to preach. Cornelius Wolfkin became power, pa- pastor of the Park Avenue Baptist Church, and he wanted to lead that church into liberalism. The next pastor that he led the church to call was a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was a profound liberal. Here's Fosdick. Fosdick's shift to progressive theology came while he studied at Colgate there in Rochester. Anyone heard of Colgate toothpaste? William Colgate was a Baptist deacon who gave the money to start Colgate. And it was a a Baptist theological seminary. Fosdick's shift to progressive theology came while he studied at Colgate. He struggled with the intellectual credibility of his inherited orthodoxy. He became a convinced believer in evolution. He realized that that he, quote, did not have to believe anything simply because it was in the Bible. And he left the teaching of biblical inerrancy. So when you move away from the Bible as your authority in the schools, that trickles down into the churches. And we know that here at Grace Baptist, right? And so I'm going to be talking about that next week. But here's what I want to know. And notice what it says in verse 153. Consider mine affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget thy law. And then he says in verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not thy statutes. And then he says, quicken me according to thy judgments. And notice what he says, the other reason that he's asking God to help him, middle of verse 157, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. That means he inclines toward God's testimonies. And he's he's grieved because these people don't keep his word. And then verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Strong believed in evolution. He just believed God did it. And honestly, I think that might believe in a more, be a more powerful God because it's a greater miracle to believe that God did evolution than that he made man out of dirt. Ridiculous. Thy word's true from the beginning. Okay, let me help you. Caleb, just in case you didn't know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what Psalm 119 says? That's true. That's true. So we believe in a literal six-day creation. We believe God's words. We want to keep God's words. We don't want to forget them. We don't want to deny them. We are grieved when people change. They don't keep God's word. And yet, what does this look like in my life? So I crawl into God's presence and I say, God, consider my affliction. You, by your own judgments, discern what I need next and when I need it. But could I, in good faith and in good conscience, say, Lord, you know how I keep your word. You know how I walk in your law. You know what testimonies I incline my heart to and which testimonies I decline my heart from. One of the things, and I'm done, I can tell by your faces that the time change has affected you. So I'm done, but I want to challenge you with this. 
We're getting ready to instill our team ministry. We'll have a meeting about that again today, the leaders of that. We're blending that with our discipleship ministry. So everybody wake up for just a second. I really feel like God has impressed something on me. And you all know that I don't talk that way. You know, I'm data from Star Trek. I take information, not impressions. I think I even have the same skin tone. Um, And yet, I really believe that we are here for such a time as this. Not me, we. And that um, I, how many more generations do you think we have of Christian liberty in the United States? Two? Do you have confidence that 60 years from now, if the Lord doesn't return, that we're going to have spiritual liberty? So then what do we need to do? All right, all of you young men, come up here and face out here. All of you guys on the front row here, face out there. Every one of these guys must know how to teach the Bible. Listen, they have to know how to teach the Bible as well as I do. Every man in the church, stand up. Every one of you, if we really believe that Religious liberty is going away in the next two generations. Every one of you must be able to teach the Bible. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to pay the price of time, of labor? The Bible says much studiness is a weariness of the bones. What if churches become your neighbors? That's the whole church. They sneak into your house. And you go down in the basement and you block out the windows and you teach them the Bible. What if that's what Christianity becomes? Thank you. You can all be seated. Ladies, I'm not going to have you stand. But here's what we need. We need ladies who have the capacity to teach the Bible to other ladies as well as I do. Now, some of you might be thinking who don't know our church, boy, you must really think you're something to say that they need to be able to teach as well as you do. No, if there's no pastor that can be there. And the other thing, you ladies need to be able to encourage your husband to be the leader that God needs him to be. Because even if these churches become small churches, where it's just a couple of families, God still requires male leadership in that group. Do do we believe that? So as a church and as a pastor, as God's under-shepherd in this place who has been called by God and appointed by this church to lead this church. How am I going to do that here? 
by requiring some things from you. So as we begin this team ministry, now let me step back. What's the requirement for salvation? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. None of this has to do with whether or not you get to go to heaven. All of this has to do with our responsibility as believers in the world that God has placed us in. A couple of ends there, but where God has placed us, that's where we have to be able to minister. And it's my job, my responsibility, my divine calling to prepare you for that. And I never thought I'd have to do it. I could almost cry. But here's the good news. There's a foundation here to do that. So what we have to do is in discipleship, I want many of you who have not signed up for discipleship, I want you to sign up. I want you to, there's a, there's a card in the chair in front of you. I want you to fill that out and get it to us. We have trained disciplers ready to teach you how to teach somebody else the Bible. That's where we have to start. But you disciplers, and we're going to talk about this in the discipleship meeting, you have got to start holding your disciples accountable. There are four checkpoints in discipleship. So if you sign up for discipleship, this is what's expected of you. Number one, we expect you to get saved. If you're not saved, we expect you to be saved. How many of you think that's a good qualification? Okay. Number one, you have to be saved. Number two, what's the first step of obedience after a person is saved? What is that? We expect you to be baptized, but you have to be baptized either here or in a church of like faith and practice. Because your baptism identifies you with, with Jesus Christ. It identifies you with a local church and with that church's doctrine. So we expect you to be scripturally baptized. So number one, we expect you to get saved. Number two, we expect you to be baptized. Number three, we expect you to join the church. Now, if you get baptized here, that makes you a member. It's easy. It's a two for one. Such a deal. So, but if you have been baptized somewhere else, we expect you to join Grace Baptist Church. Now, we have had people that refuse to do that. They refuse to do it. And here's what's so silly. Here's church membership. That's what church membership is. I'm in. I'm in. But not only is it I'm in, but I'm willing to submit to the church in my life. I'm willing to be held accountable. And then that leads us to our fourth checkpoint. Number one, let's say them out loud. This will be good. What's number one? What's number two? What's number three? Church membership. Okay, number one? Okay, you're getting weaker. Number one? Number two? Number three? Number four? Tithing. Tithing. And it's so funny. And a hush fell on the congregation. (laughs) You'd be amazed at the spiritual people in this room, the really godly people, that are as carnal as the devil. They never give a dime. They come and they use the heat. They use the air conditioning. They use the water. They listen to the preaching. They enjoy the atmosphere. And they don't give a dime. It's Baptist welfare. Listen. All you preachers ever talk about is money. Man, I had a guy one time. I, this is 20 years ago. I was on a tear, you know, preaching. Man, if some of y'all think I was mean now, you should have seen me 20 years ago. 
<laughs> and I said, if you're just, if you make a good living and, and you're going to put a $5 bill in the offering plate, just keep it. Don't tip God. And this guy got really mad at me because that's what he gave <laughs> five bucks a week. <laughs> it's not about money. Does God, can I be honest? Let's be honest. Uh, Nathan Arling, does God need your money? You need to give it. It's a sign of maturity. It's a a sign of growth. And it's also a sign of responsibility. Pull your weight. Pull your weight. And so, if we are going to fund missions, if we're going to pay off the building, if we're going to be able to do what God wants us to do in perpetuity, that's funded by God's people. And so, you say, Pastor, this message was going so good. How did we get to these requirements Because we only have a couple of generations of freedom left. We, need, we must have mature believers. We must have men that lead their families and that pray with their families. Yesterday, Laura and I were having a conversation about... I'm talking about all these meetings I'm preaching and, and I have so many different sermons in my head and things I'm preparing for. And it's wonderful to be married to a godly lady who knows the Bible and we can talk about those things. In your home, what spiritual and biblical conversations do you have between husband and wife, between parents and children? And again, if Chase is going to be is going to, to need to be teaching the Bible to somebody, and he is, what conversations are we having now? So during the uh, the, the Grand Prix, I'm going to go in with you guys, and we're going to talk. And I'm going to ask you questions about what you believe, and we're going to talk. I'm not going to talk at you. We're going to have a conversation. Because I believe with all my heart that we're going to get to the place where it's going to be small groups of people being led by sold-out believers who are willing to suffer persecution. And we can only begin preparing those people now. And... It's time for me to be done. But we've got some guys. How many of you guys were in the military or are in the military? Would you raise your hand? Okay. Um, How many of you want the people defending you to be soft, flabby, unprepared? You know, somebody's about to invade the country. Why can't we all just get along? The Chinese are good people too. Is that what we want defending us? And there might be some great Chinese people. They have a system of government that hates God and hates us. So what do we want? We want some pretty tough guys. If you've got to be able to do so many pull-ups, sorry ladies, you're out. Why? Because it's not about social engineering. It's about warfare. And what are we in? 
We are in, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's where we are. How many of you really believe that? Seriously, you really believe it. So my challenge to you, my exhortation to you, let's begin by faithfulness. How about just be here? Hear the word of God, be here. And then as you are here, begin picking something up. Begin carrying your weight. And that's in different ways. That's in different. I'm not saying every man needs to be able to stand up in the pulpit and do what I'm doing right now and speak extemporaneously. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the capacity to sit with people you love and open up God's word and talk about it. That's what I'm talking about. Are y'all following me on this? And that begins by volunteering for a team. And, and just so you know, this is not my method of, hey, let's fill up our teams so we can do more work. No. It's about training. It's about organizing the church to utilize the gifts that God has brought here and so we can be good stewards and ready when the trouble comes because it is coming. The prudent man seeth trouble afar off and hideth himself from it. Amen? Are you all with me on this? Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you. We don't deserve anything. But as we come before you, as we come into your presence and we, we ask you for help, Lord, I want us all to be able to say, Lord, you know what I believe.